0: Good evening to you. Nehemiah chapter one this evening and our journey through the scriptures from Genesis to Revelation. If you're with us tonight and you don't have a Bible, there are men coming up the aisles with Bibles, and if you just wave to them and get their attention, they'll get a Bible into your hands. And uh, we try to cover a couple of chapters at least a night. And uh, kind of hard to just listen without being able to look down and see where we are and what's going on. And we kind of have double the absorption rate if we can hear something and read it at the same time. So they'll get a Bible uh, into your hands uh, at your request. Beginning a new book uh, of Nehemiah tonight, and I think that it's helpful, always is for me, to kind of have a little bit of a bird's eye view of the book and get that kind of situated and then start to move down into kind of the specifics of it. And the book of Nehemiah, is really invaluable instruction to us as God's people. Invaluable instruction on how to begin and to complete any work that God has called us to do on His behalf. And, and all, there's a wide variety of things that God calls us to do. But they all have a beginning and there are challenges to those beginnings. They all have a middle. They all have an end. And as diverse as the things are that God calls us to do, there's an awful lot that that is very common that we meet in the course of, of trying to accomplish something for the Lord that he's called us to in the expansion of his kingdom. And so it gives us that kind of of insight whether it's raising godly children or whether it's becoming the next Billy Graham or whatever it might be so it 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 uh, is is priceless to us really in that way because it is that kind of instruction very often uh, the book of Nehemiah is taught For instance, in a series at pastors conferences for how to begin something and how to complete something that God has called us to very often when a church is in the middle of some kind of. A great step of faith. Sometimes they're expanding a a building or expanding some portion of what they're involved in. Maybe a new major outreach into missions or into their community. Uh, The church will study as a whole the book of Nehemiah to all get on the same page and, and see what's going to be involved in all of that. And then as God calls us individually to do something, It's a great book that uh, Christians turn to once again to get refreshed related to this new venture in faith that we're going to take for the Lord and to refresh ourselves in the instruction that is found here. Nehemiah was a contemporary of Ezra, and we're just coming out of the book of Ezra, also a contemporary of the prophet Malachi, a little bit of a history lesson here and uh, review in 538 B.C. That's when Zerubbabel led the first return of Jews from the Babylonia end of the Babylonian captivity. And they uh, came back into the city of Jerusalem for the purpose of rebuilding the Jewish uh, temple and reestablishing worship at that temple. And then 60 years later. In 458 B.C., Ezra the scribe, he led a second return of the Jews from captivity for the purpose of teaching the Jews that were already in the land now. Uh, Teaching them concerning God's word Concerning God's law Related to their own personal lives Related to how worship was to be conducted There at at the temple And we saw how that last week How they had begun even In the highest levels of people that had Spiritual authority had begun To marry into uh, Heathen kind of families And and all the idolatry And all that kind of thing And so Ezra had been sent back to take Care of those things though he didn't know that All of that was happening. God did, and that's why he sent him. There's a funny thing, of course, about ministering for the Lord. You know, I I don't know. Maybe you're like me. Maybe you're not like me. But I like to know everything before I start something. And sometimes the Lord says, listen, I I want you to go and do this. He speaks to us the way that we can understand. And we say, oh, I mean, what kind of a need is there going to be over here for me to come and do this? You know, and then you get there and you realize, wow, there was a need. You know, God, uh, you're amazing once again. Then in 445 B.C., 14 years uh, after Ezra's return to Jerusalem, Nehemiah also returned to Jerusalem for the purpose of rebuilding the walls of the city of uh, Jerusalem. And so even though it's a historical record of the rebuilding of the walls of Jerusalem, as I said, spiritually, it speaks to us uh, concerning uh, ministry of, uh, of every kind. And so God's work, as we're going to find out here in the book, never easy, always opposition. God has a lot of enemies in this world to this day. They are no match for him, but they'll always attack of what God calls uh, is doing and and when he's using us that means it's going to be an attack upon us uh and they have a lot of different devices and they're all exposed in the book of Nehemiah which is one of the fun things about it so here we get this practical you know instruction the book breaks down into two main divisions chapters 1 through 6 is uh we could entitle the reconstruction of Jerusalem's walls, and then chapters 7 through 13, the reinstruction of God's uh, people. So we begin here in chapter 1, verse 1. The words of Nehemiah, the son of uh, Hakaliah, and it came to pass in the month of Chislev, in the 20th year, as I was in Shushan, the citadel. And so the author of the book is uh, Nehemiah the date of these events here in the early part of the book they occur in the month of Chislev in the 20th year Chislev was uh, it was the equivalent of our November December so winter time uh, for them, and that's why these events took place in Shushan, the the uh, citadel. That was the location of the winter palace for the Persian kings. And Persia is uh, dominating the world uh, with a little bit of help from the Medes at this point of time. And so, this is all taking place in what is modern-day Iraq, about 150 miles. North of the Persian Gulf. And so Nehemiah is kind of going on about his business. And uh, in this time frame, uh, Hanani, one of my brethren, and we'll see in chapter seven that this is really one of his brothers came with men from Judah. So they had apparently gone from uh, this area of the Middle East, a- ancient Persia, had made their way to Jerusalem, had seen the condition of the city and come back That's a thousand miles in one direction. And so he comes back and of course, uh, uh, Nehemiah has curiosity about the condition of uh, the people in Jerusalem and the condition of the city. And so he asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped, those who had, uh, you know, the 50,000 that had gone back under Zerubbabel, you know, the 2000 or 3000 that had gone back uh, under Ezra, how they were doing in the city of of Jerusalem they had survived the captivity and he asked not only the condition of the people but concerning the city of Jerusalem as a whole and they said to me the survivors who were left from the captivity in the province in Israel uh, Judah was a province of Persia at this point in time and so the survivors who were left from the captivity in the province of Judah are in great distress and reproach in other words we did not like to see the condition of God's people, what they were uh, in when we uh, took and we, we saw them there. And uh, they were a persecuted minority, even in the city uh, of Jerusalem. And concerning the city of Jerusalem itself, the wall of Jerusalem is broken down. It's just one big heap and its gates are burned with fire. And so. Here is Nehemiah. He asks the, con- the condition of the, uh, of the people and also uh, of the city. And here's Nehemiah. He's in Shushan I and mean, he's a thousand miles away from the action. And yet he has a burden for uh, the city of Jerusalem. His heart, he's living in Shushan. He's basically a captive there. He's a servant slash slave. Uh, To Artaxerxes But his heart is in Jerusalem And uh, as was the case with Every uh, good Jewish uh, man and woman Psalm 137 David wrote If I forget you, O Jerusalem Let my right hand forget her skill If I do not remember you Let my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth If I do not exalt Jerusalem Above my chief Joy. And so here he is. He's living far away. And he's in a very, very comfortable situation, as we're going to see. But as hard as with God's people, because God's work is tied to God's people. And so he this is all that he cares about. He's got a, a great situation that he's in, but he wants has a concern for God's people all around the world and specifically in Jerusalem. Well, they told him in, in that response of, of the destruction of everything and that the telling them that the people were in a really bad way. The city walls are, are burnt are, are torn down and the walls are in, in the gates of the city. Rather, they're all uh, burnt and just a, a, an ash heap all burned with fire. And when you think about a wall around the city of Jerusalem, it's fascinating. If you take a trip to Israel sometime in one of the days. That on a tour where you're in the city of Jerusalem, there's a little section of Nehemiah's wall that is exposed in the old city of Jerusalem, the Jewish section of the city. And so when you are picturing uh, this uh, wall and the width of it, I mean, it's easily from here to the end of those steps at the top and it tears down. We're talking about a huge, huge Wall That was around that city. Don't think of something in England uh, separating, you know, two fields. This was gigantic. And when Nebuchadnezzar was conquered Jerusalem for the third time and he said, all right, three times is enough. I'm done with you people. He sent uh, his uh, chief kind of officer back with the necessary men to completely destroy the city and to tear that wall down. I mean, just to take all those rocks, one off of another until it's just a uh, heap of rubble there in 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 that place. Now, in the ancient world, a wall represented protection and it represented separation, protection from your enemies, separation from the outward outside world. And the Jews at this point uh, had neither. And so here are these walls in a heap, the same condition. Here they are 140 years after Nebuchadnezzar had done this, and those walls are in the same condition. And so Nehemiah realized that the walls needed to be repaired in order for the city uh, to survive. Now look at his response uh, to this news. And so it was, when I heard this report, I heard these words, that I sat down. It was like, somebody give me a chair. I can't stand up. So he sits down, probably on the ground. And he begins to weep. And the word that's used in the Hebrew there for weeping, uh, it means to flow in drops. This is one tough man, as we're going to see in this book. I mean, he, you can't intimidate this guy. You can't rough him up. You can't, I mean, this guy is something. And yet he gets this news, and he just, it just hits him like a ton of bricks. And he has to just sit down. And he begins to weep. Why did he do it? Because he cared. That simple. Because he cared about God, cared about God's work, cared about God's people. And when he saw God's people and heard of God's people in a condition. That was so far. From the life that God had promised them. If they would just simply obey the word of God and it just broke his heart. And so he sits down and he begins to weep and 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 that weeping. It's interesting. You know, one of the fascinating studies in the Bible is to do a study of weeping and how God views it. It's interesting in the Bible that tears in the eyes of God, tears are their own language. It's a language. It's a prayer. When a person sits down and they begin to weep. That's a communication. That's a language. Not all of us can translate it. Not all of us can interpret it. But God interprets it. Interprets this language of, uh, of, of tears. And the Bible says in Psalm 56, 8, as the psalmist wrote to the Lord, You number my wanderings and you put my tears into your bottle. Are they not in your book? God knows the words and the heart condition and the mind behind every tear. And he records it. What is the book? Malachi 3.16 tells us. And then those who feared the Lord, they spoke to one another. And the Lord listened and he heard them. And so a book of remembrance was written before him for those who fear the Lord, who meditate on his name. The Lord is is an eavesdropper on every conversation that occurs Concerning him and he also notices every tear that is shed that reflects his heart or where he would weep if he was looking at the same thing uh, in the world. The Bible says one day this language of tears is going to uh, cease. Revelation chapter 21. God says he's going to uh, wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death nor sorrow. Nor crying, there shall be no more pain, for the former things are passed away. I'll tell you, in weeping, Nehemiah was in very, very good biblical company. Jeremiah, the prophet, wept so much, he's nicknamed the weeping prophet. And it wasn't just... Because he was like having trouble with his hormones late in life or something. And some kind of an imbalance in the pituitary gland or what. I mean, that's what they would do to him today. They'd diagnose him right out of something spiritual. This was a tough guy. And he's the kind of guy, you know, I mean, it wasn't like you say, all right, he's, he's beefed up and he's over at Gold's or in shape or something. And he's built like this. I have known the body of Christ, it's been my pleasure to know. I'm glad for everybody that is built like that and has muscles like that. I need that kind of help at times. But I have known men that couldn't throw a football from off the end of this stage. And I'll tell you, I'd go to war with them. I'd certainly go into any spiritual battle with them. Tough up here. Tough in their spirit. Toughen their heart. So tears don't have anything to do with that. And so Jeremiah was known as the weeping prophet. I think about how many times in the Psalms, David, who could doubt the masculinity and strength of David? The Psalms are filled with speaking of his tears. The Apostle Paul wept, we're told. Book of Acts, serving the Lord, he said, with all humility, with many tears and trials. And of course, Uh, Jesus wept well not only did Nehemiah weep here but we're told that he then mourned for many days and the word mourn is interesting in the Hebrew as well it means to it means literally a loud wailing the pain of that news in his heart was was something that just had to audibly Be expressed in that kind of way. And again, as we saw with Ezra last time, we see it now with Nehemiah that there's a whole. There's a whole new level of spirituality that's tucked away in this man that isn't wasn't found in just every Christian, so to speak, in those days. There were tons of people who heard reports about how bad the condition was for God's people and the city in Jerusalem. And there was no response like this. There were tens of thousands of Jews living, not just hearing the news. They were living in that condition. And they weren't even they didn't even blink at it anymore, didn't impact them anymore. They're just willing to live down to that low level of life, no matter what the promises of God are in the word of God and in the light of what they should have been in the word. They just got used to it. And they said, this is just the way that it is. And it takes a guy like this. See, this is the thing. Way before he ever gets on an animal and travels a thousand miles to Jerusalem, even before he begins to pray and lift this up to the Lord, this is the impact of this news upon his heart. And the whole world looks, it, and even the religious world or the Jewish world at the time, they looked at Jerusalem in one way, and here is Nehemiah, he looks at Jerusalem in the light of the Psalms and the greatness of Mount Zion and God is there and how God looks at Jerusalem. And so he is viewing it in a biblical way and with a passion that nobody else has. And, and it, it, it's not just that he, he's concerned about the people and the walls, this, these physical things, though that is there. He has God's heart toward his city and toward, toward the people. And so he mourned for many days. And then he began to fast. And fasting is biblical. And sometimes you fast in the, in the Bible. Fasting, oftentimes the intention of it is you know, the amount of time that is given to food preparation in the culture, we can get fast food. I mean, 90 seconds, we can be through a drive through and, and eating uh, 18,000 calories for under $5. In those days, I mean, it took a long time, but even with us, the amount of time spent preparing food, thinking about food, getting food, all of this multiple times in a day and all, and to take and say, all right, For this period of time, I'm going to take all of the time that's used in related to food in that way. I'm going to take that time and I'm going to move that to prayer. Because I know that this reaction that I have had to this news comes from God. And God is speaking to me. And God wants to use me in this situation. Sometimes, and maybe the case related to his fasting at this point in time, sometimes you hear news that is so... Uh, hard to bear that you just simply lose your appetite but whatever the case is he engaged in fasting and then praying before the Lord of Heaven and so he began to pray Now Nehemiah was a man of prayer it's fascinating he is a man of action he is a man of action but he's also a man of prayer ten times in the book of Nehemiah his prayers are recorded and and, and uh, so a man of action, but also a man of prayer. And I think all men of action who either are men of prayer or become men of prayer, uh, they become men of prayer because they learn sometimes the hard way that all na- action needs to be preceded by prayer uh, and, and a result of the answer to prayer. Otherwise, it's going to be a mess. I think it's a fabulous, just a beautiful combination in a life of a child of God, where you have a person, man or woman of action, but that action is directed by prayer. And that is Nehemiah. And you notice his prayer. He said, I pray, Lord God of heaven, O great and awesome God. And he began his prayer by just taking a moment and reminding himself of the greatness of the God that he is praying to so he said he is praying to the God of heaven and that he is absolutely almighty and sovereign over everything over the whole world and he is saying to God there is nothing that's too difficult for you and it's absolutely comparable and the disciples came to Jesus and they said teach us how to pray And Jesus gave them what was called the Lord's Prayer, but he couldn't pray it, so it's basically a model prayer for us as Christians. He said, pray after this manner. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. It is a daily stopping, remembering the greatness of the God that we are praying to, and then spending some portion of time Worshipping him for his greatness before we even head into the petition of the thing that we're going to ask him to do in our life. Someone has said that difficulty is always must always be measured by the capacity of the agent doing the work. And that's true. And, there, and what that communicates to us is that when we ask God to do something, we bring something to God In prayer, the Bible tells us that nothing is too difficult for Him. In fact, nothing is difficult for Him. No finite doing of anything can even cause the infinite to break a sweat. The gulf between the finite and the infinite is infinite, it's absolutely huge. And and so here he is before he gets to the need and he's going to ask some very big things of God here. He takes and he spends some time worshiping the Lord. And I think it's very, very wise uh, for us uh, to do that as well. And and spend some time just acknowledging the greatness of the God that we're praying uh, to. If we don't realize how great God is and spend some time. Our Father which art in heaven. You may say, I don't know any other words. That's all you need to know. Just sit quietly, you and the Holy Spirit, with that. Our Father which art in heaven. And you realize how big He is. How small I am. How small my problems are in comparison to Him. And what it does is it fills me with a peace. There is, the Bible talks about Paul wrote to the Philippians and he says, if if we lift up our prayers and supplications, our needs with thanksgiving, then the peace of God will set itself up as a guard around our heart. The peace that surpasses all human understanding. There is a peace that comes with understanding. I get a uh, something goes out on my truck. I take it in in order to get it repaired, find out what it costs, $800, oh, I'm sunk. And then I go home and I receive a, an $850 bonus from somewhere. And all of a sudden now I've got, there is a piece that comes with understanding. I've got $50 more than it's going to cost me to fix my truck. Or I've got a, a medical diagnosis that is is this, and, and it's looming, and then I get the report back and they say, it's all come back clear, it, 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 everything is fine, you're normal. And then all of a sudden I'm filled with a peace that comes with understanding. But there is a peace that we need as God's people in this world that is beyond our physical circumstances or beyond Understanding. And it is a peace that comes with knowing how big our God is, how great He is, how much He loves us, how much He is for us, what He is capable of. And then in spending time worshiping Him in this way, when we do, then we are able to leave with confidence our needs on His lap and walk away in peace, even though we don't have an understanding of how he's going to fix those things. That's the peace that he gives. If you have a prayer life, in general, a prayer life where it's like it's measured by a stopwatch, and the day begins and it's just the lifting up of the 16 uh, fires that are burning in my life at this moment, that I need God to fix. And he'll lift him up. bum 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 Man, whew. Got another 35 seconds this morning. I'm getting good. And then you walk away and what happens? You're carrying all 16 of those problems. Right out of that chair and right out of that house. And you take the time to just stop. and Consider how big, big he is. The Bible says cast all of your cares on him. He's got big shoulders. And God tells us why, casting all of our cares on him because he cares for us. It really does take some time to realize the greatness of the one that we're praying to, for us to, instead of just being like psychosomatic or mind over matter, it really has to be there for us to, with confidence and surrender, leave them with him and walk away from that throne with peace, that understanding of his greatness. I think that's one of the great mistakes that's being made today and continually um, in the body of Christ. It's not new today, but historically, where you see within churches, and we've certainly seen 20 years of this kind of thing in American Christianity, where the move has gone from the exalting of God to the exalting of man. And so the church services uh, incrementally become man exalting or they become man-focused rather than God-focused. And to the degree that a service or anything is man-focused, it is to that degree it is not God-focused. And people look at it and say, well, we really don't pay any kind of a price for that. It doesn't really harm anybody. But it does. Because three months down the road, six months down the road, three years down the road, If I just think God is just like this glorified version of myself and that I'm actually a little bit more important to him, where are you going to take your prayer needs? Where are we going to lift these things up and then be able to walk away and have a supernatural peace related to these things? So recognizing the greatness of God and how it puts things in perspective. That's why the worship is so important. Sometimes people say, I didn't get anything out of the worship. Something like that. Well, maybe you weren't supposed to. Maybe it's all about God and not all about you. Oh, that's what I was doing, huh? The light goes on. And and so this whole. But what it does so often is we're lifting up magnifying the Lord and all our spirit is being enriched and all. Then we realize, wow, God is this big. He can be trusted with my problem. And it's a great thing. So he prays, oh, great and uh, uh, awesome God, you who keep your covenant and mercy with those who love you and observe your commandments. And so he lifts this. Uh, Up to the Lord and acknowledges the fact that God keeps his word and and he has mercy toward his obedient children. He keeps his promises. He's willing to forgive sin, willing to give uh, another opportunity. He's eager to bless us. So he has that recognition. God is awesome. He is amazing. I can't even put it into words, Lord, and this and all. But he's also a God who loves us and a God who cares about us. And then he says, please let your ear be attentive and your eyes open. Lord, it doesn't, doesn't mean that God has ears and eyes. He's a spirit. He doesn't. But but give give this your full attention that you may hear the prayer. Of your servant, which I pray before you now day and night for the children of Israel, your servants and confess the sins of the children of Israel, which we have sinned against you, both my father's house and I have sinned and we have acted very corruptly against you. And have not kept the commandments, the statutes, nor the ordinances which you have commanded your servant Moses. So when he talks about commandments, statutes, ordinances, he's saying we have disobeyed your law, your word in every form, every which way. And so he's just confessing uh, his his sin to the Lord and the sin uh, of the nation. And then he says, remember, though, Lord, I pray that word which you commanded your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, uh-huh. Nehemiah said, all right, we all understand that. This is where we've been. We we're unfaithful as God's people. I will scatter you among the nations. All right, got that. But, this is a wonderful uh, word in the Bible, and wonderful here to begin verse 9. But if you return to me, God had promised, and keep my commandments and do them, Though some of you were cast out to the farthest part of the heavens, yet I will gather them from there and bring them to the place which I have chosen as a dwelling for my name, back into Jerusalem. And now these are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. And so basically what he does is he claims a promise from God. He looks at the situation that he's in, And he's and he's got a request that he wants to make of God and he looks in the word of God and he makes a request and the request that he makes is based on Deuteronomy chapter seven, verse nine and verse twelve. God had made this problem to the children of Israel and he looked at that promise and he said that promise is mine because it applies to this situation. When's the last time? This is not a guilt gotcha, so I'm not trying to trap anyone. When is the last time you claimed a promise related to your circumstance and your situation as a Christian? Don't shout out. I don't want any of that. But if we sit here, we say, yes, I know the Bible well and I know the promises of God and I've got a book on the promises of God and all of this. But if we fail to actually claim a promise related to our situation and say, Lord, that Promise is mine in this situation. That's something that should characterize our lives as Christians. We should do that because that promise is going to have the final say related to the situations in our lives. The problem is, is if we don't claim the promises of God then we can get used to living some very low level Christianity that's way below the promises of God. And then everybody begins to think this is Christianity because everybody's in the same boat because nobody knows the promises anymore. and Nobody's claiming them anymore. It's a good thing to claim the promises of God related to our lives and to our circumstances. And that's exactly what Nehemiah does here. And then he makes his request in verse 11. He said, "O Lord, I pray, please let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant. And now, finally, after all this, he gets to his need. He says, be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who desire to fear your name and let your servant prosper this day. I pray and grant him mercy in the sight of this man who is this man. King of Persia, King Artaxerxes. He said, for I was the king's cup bearer. And so he prayed in this request that the Lord would give him mercy in the sight uh, of the king. And we're going to see in just a moment that his desire, what he wanted to ask the king for, was permission to go to Jerusalem, to rebuild the wall there, to be an encouragement uh, to God's people there. And humanly speaking, This was absolutely impossible. Nehemiah is a slave in Persia. He is a high ranking slave, but he can't go to another city, let alone to another country without the king's permission. And so this is what the vision that is on his heart. And he realizes, God, you're going to have to move the man who is the, the single most powerful man in the world at the moment. In order for this to happen. So he's praying big. He's asking very, very big uh, here for it requires a miracle of God for it to occur, occur, and that's what he's asking for. Now, having offered this prayer to the Lord, it would be four months before he experienced God's answer to prayer. Four months. You ever prayed for something for four months? Now, I, I, I offer up two of those 35 seconders on Monday and Tuesday. And if I haven't seen some action, I mean, I'm done with it. I'm just teasing a little bit. Four months. Do you know that God answers every prayer immediately? And His answers are these. Sometimes He answers yes. Happens immediately. Sometimes He answers no. And no matter how long you pray. It's still going to be a no. And then sometimes, which is very hard for some of us, he answers prayers with wait. And when you're a person that likes to do this, just type A, you just like to see something happen and accomplished. I mean, that wait thing can really, really be hard uh, to live through. And sometimes waiting for the right timing in in. Uh, in, in for an answer to prayer is sometimes that's a lot harder than just hearing a no. But it's important to realize there's a timing about God's will. And that might be the big main thing of this early part of maybe, you know, chapter one here, certainly related to the book of Nehemiah. I just assume God's in as big a hurry as I am, and I'm in a big hurry all the time. That's uh, My bent is to move, move quickly, accomplish stuff, get it done. And I have to be moved from that. Nobody has to light a fire under me. So that's my weakness. And I've got to be moved back in the other direction by the Holy Spirit. Other people have a problem in, in the other other direction. And sometimes we only view faith as active. So. Sometimes when people you hear preaching or something and it talks about taking a step of faith or don't you have enough uh, faith or faith is always moving, it's jumping, it's doing or sometimes you know, I've even heard um, faith preach just this side of listen, do something even if it's wrong, I'm trying to stir up the congregation. A little bit, but a lot of the teaching today, we view the ultimate expression of faith as being doing something. And, you know, that may be the ultimate expression of faith for a certain group of people. But there is another group of people for whom the hardest expression of faith is to wait on God for his timing and what it is that we feel he has put upon our heart to do. Faith can be manifested in waiting as much as in doing. Isaiah chapter 28, verse 16. God said, therefore, thus says the Lord God, behold, I lay in Zion a stone for a foundation, a tried stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. And whoever believes shall not act hastily. And then Isaiah chapter 64, verse 4. I love this verse. Given my personality. And what it tells us is that waiting isn't wasted time. The Bible teaches that while we're waiting, while we're waiting, we think nothing's getting done. Time's a wasting. The Bible teaches that when we're waiting, God is working. For since the beginning of the world, men have not heard nor perceived by the ear, nor has it the eye seen any God beside you who acts for those, for the one who waits for him. And so important to realize that sometimes faith is demonstrated in waiting upon uh, the Lord. God's work always involves three things. The right person, the right place and the right time. And it takes all three of those things. You can be the right person. You can be in the right place. But if you don't get the timing right, then it's not going to work. You can be called by God to go pastor a church somewhere, you know, where the city is going to be that you're going to go to. And so you just go do it and you don't wait on the timing and the whole thing blows up and it never works out or anything like that. And you think, okay, that calling is all completely dead. No, it's not dead. You're the right. You're still the right person It's still the right place. You just got to let him choose the timing or whatever the calling might be. But it's always made up of those three things. Now, Nehemiah tells us that he was the king's cupbearer. And that was a very, very um, high position for a servant, a position of great, great trust, uh, great, great honor uh, in that day. The cupbearer was responsible for tasting the wine before it was served to the king just to make sure that it wasn't poisoned. <laughs> so the position meant that uh, his life might be in danger a little bit based upon the polling uh, related to the current king. But, uh, but by virtue of being in that position, and since wine was consumed in uh, fairly copious amounts by kings in those days, uh, Nehemiah had access to the throne of Artaxerxes an awful lot of time. So this was position to have a cupbearer, that was a a position that was given to very, very trusted uh, uh, people. And so given the fact that he has that position, he would have heard a lot of confidential information. And uh, so he has great character and the king has absolute trust in him. It was also a position of real significance and a position that was very, uh, very, very secure. So Nehemiah has, I don't know that there is a secure uh, job in government anymore because of what's happened in the last uh, four years or so in the United States of America. But in terms of uh, Persia, he's as high up as you can be. That job is secure as anything could be secure. This side uh, of heaven, he's if he if he just doesn't fumble. He's he is. He's got the job. He's got a great job. He's got a rewarding job. He's got a great pension at the end of it. I mean, everything is completely in place. And so when you look at the place that he's in and then he looks and on his heart is to go to Jerusalem and to take care of this situation, he didn't need to do that. He didn't need to make that problem his own. He could have just looked and said, listen, the way that things are today, you just got to look out for yourself. Make sure that you've got your security and this and that. And I'm really sad about God's people over in that place. But listen, you're not going to bump me from this. You get a job like this. I mean, they're not a dime a dozen. And, and yet. It, despite the fact that he's just personally set in terms of job and security and all his concern was much larger than himself concerned for the welfare of other people. And I think it's also important to notice as we just think about ministry a little bit tonight, that all of this began. Those walls are going to end up being built in Jerusalem. And it all begins. with the king doesn't begin with a prophet doesn't begin with a priest. doesn't begin with a Levite. It begins with a slave cupbearer in the kingdom of Persia, who happens to also be a Jew. That was God's choice for the task. Now, if they needed a kind of a, a school in Jerusalem, on how to pour wine and taste it, then you'd say, Nehemiah is your man. But what can a cupbearer know about construction (laughs) and about building walls? It's just not a match. God makes just some of the dumbest choices. And I am one of those choices, by the way. And the way that God chooses people he doesn't look at all the time and just say, well, OK, this lines up and they got the degrees and they got all of this and this and everything. And then I'll plug him in right there. God can do that. But when he takes a cupbearer out of Persia and makes him the man that he uses to lead to building, rebuilding the walls around the whole city of Jerusalem. You think Nehemiah is going to get the glory for that? God's going to get the glory for that. So the more, like, abstract or crazy the choice of the vessel is, the more glory that God gets, as Paul wrote to the church at Corinth, because they didn't get any of that stuff at all. They didn't realize how God made his choices. He chooses people so that when people see God use that person, they say, that's so crazy. I grew up with that guy. I grew up with that that uh, gal. And I'm telling you, That any good that comes out of their life is God. I knew them before. And then God gets all of the glory. Here's the point in our lives. And it's a familiar saying in the body of Christ. But everybody has a right to hear it once. And it's this. God isn't so concerned about our ability. But about our availability. And it's true. It doesn't mean that he doesn't produce ability and those kind of things in our life. And he can't do that. And it's always a detriment. It doesn't. But the biggest thing is availability. Making myself available to him to use me however he wants to use me. And then for him to put me in this kind of inconceivable situation. And then use. I'll, tell, I'll, I'll just tell you candidly. I don't know one single Calvary Chapel Pastor. That I don't look at and say, that is all God. I am not even remotely tempted to give them any credit at all or any glory at all. And I love that heritage. And it's not just true about Calvary chapels. But that's the way that it ought to be. And what happens is, especially if you're a little bit younger or new to Christianity, we just dismiss ourselves. We say, all right, I don't have the degree. I don't have this kind of a background. I don't have this. I'm not good at this. I'm not good at this and all. And we don't realize sometimes that's exactly who God is looking for. If I'll make myself available to him, because then when he uses you, he'll get all the glory and then you won't even be tempted to touch the glory because then he can say, all right, Mr. Big Shot, big buckaroo, you know, Grand Puba, think you're so tough and so great and such a gift to the body of Christ. Preach that sermon on your own. And you come out here for 50 minutes And you leave the stage with a tail between your legs. Not that that doesn't happen every week. (laughs) And then he gets all the credit and all the glory. And I think it's good, too, as we think about not just the availability, but I think it's also important to look at what it is in our hearts as Christians. say, all right. I want to be a Nehemiah. I want to be used by God. I have no idea. The walls are already built in Jerusalem. What can I do about that now? So what's he want to do in my life? Look at your soft spot in your heart. When you look at the body of Christ, when you look at the world, what makes you just... You have to find a seat and sit down and you begin to weep Maybe just inside, but you begin to weep over the condition. And then it turns into maybe fasting and seeking the Lord in prayer. And we have those soft spots. I think about Jesus. There were a couple of times it's recorded in the Gospels. But one time the man was a a mute. And they brought him to Jesus to heal him and allow him to speak. And it said concerning Jesus, even before he performed the miracle, that he looked up into heaven, and he sighed. And I love that picture of him. What do you look at in the world that when you see it, your heart, you sigh inside over the condition of things? It may have something to do with children may have something to do with the needy or with the sick or with missions or whatever it might be. But when you get to that place, and some of us, I'm not saying that all of us haven't, but most of us have. If we haven't covered it up with rubble, but then even as it happens, continues to happen in our walk with the Lord, in our relationship with the Lord, when you hit those things in life that just... Breaks your heart. And you look at that and you say, Lord, why did you let me see that today? Why did that impact me today when I see that every single day and it's never impacted me? Why has it impacted me today? What are you doing here? What are you saying here? And very often it is the Lord beginning to give us vision and a heart for where he wants us to to direct our lives. And so Nehemiah, beautiful lessons related to his life here as he um, uh, comes to this place of he's got the vision, he's got the heart, all this is in place, and now he needs a miracle from God. I'm going to go into chapter 2, not to make your heart sink and think that I'm going to go uh, all the way through it, And uh, but I want to get into at least the first two verses of chapter two before we finish tonight. And it came to pass in the month of Nisan. It's it it used to be uh, Dotson. So in the month of Nisan. And nice on in in the calendar in those days, that was April. So we're talking about four months later from the first events here at the beginning of chapter one. In the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was brought before him, that I took the wine, I gave it to the king. Now, I had never been sad in his presence before. And therefore, the king said to me, why is your face sad since you are not sick? This is nothing but sorrow of heart. And whatever the the king was communicating here, it had an immediate effect upon Nehemiah. So I became dreadfully afraid. If you were in this scene of verses 1 and 2, doing something else as a servant of the king, and you heard the king say this to Nehemiah, it would be like you would go rigid and say, I'm not here, I'm not here, I'm not here, I'm not here, I'm not here. I feel so bad for Nehemiah. What is going to happen to Nehemiah? He's in a real bad place in these two Uh, Verses the sad countenance here that he has in the king's presence noticed by the king and the king identifies it as sorrow of heart It provokes fear in Nehemiah's uh, inside of Nehemiah's heart. You could be fired uh, or dismissed from your position or even executed for appearing sad before a king in those days. Because to appear sad in the presence of a king was considered to be a reflection of his reign. A reflection upon himself. And, and it would uh, bring the contentment of his subjects and of his citizens uh, into question. And additionally, when that person is sad in the presence of the king, they want everybody really happy. They only picked out really attractive people to have these positions because everybody had to look great when all of these ambassadors would come from other nations. And everybody had to be happy so they would communicate, this is the greatest king in the whole wide world. We are all so happy. And And to ruin that facade in any way. Well, the king didn't really like that. They were egomaniacs for the most part. And and then additionally related to this, because the king, King Artaxerxes life depended upon his cupbearer, he would have been especially aware of any kind of mood swings. Ah, Nehemiah is not so perky today. What does that mean? I get a double checking of the wine today. What's he up to? And so he would have viewed that with some suspicion. Well, uh, Nehemiah, then he begins to um, explain uh, to the let me just look at the time here on things. Well, he explains to the king uh, his situation and the explanation for his sadness. He said, may the king live forever. Why should my face not be sad? When the city, the place of my father's tombs, lies waste and its gates are burned with fire, speaking of Jerusalem. And then the king said to Nehemiah, what do you request? What are you asking for? Now, this tells us that this king really valued Nehemiah as an employee. This is, this is better than no, you're fired. So when he asks, listen, what, what are you asking of me in all of this and what you're saying? I don't understand. Nehemiah doesn't, say, doesn't mention Jerusalem, doesn't indicate what city he's talking about. The king doesn't understand. What are you requesting? And so Nehemiah said, I prayed to the God of heaven in that instant. So immediately, here is the moment that he's been waiting for. Lord if you just give me a miracle before this man, if I could just ask permission, and he would say yes. And then suddenly it's here, and he begins to pray with, to the Lord. Forward to the church of Thessalonica, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. He said, pray without ceasing. That's what Nehemiah did. He's in the presence of the most powerful man in the world at the time. And yet he's in that presence, in the presence of the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And he knows he has access to that throne any time, so he begins to pray. Probably a very simple prayer. Lord, here it is. Here's the opportunity I'm going to ask and I'm going to put trust in you to, you know, work this for what you've put on my heart. So he prayed to the God of heaven. And then I said to the king, if it pleases the king, very, very polite, very respectful, this man. And if your servant has found favor in your sight, I ask that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's tombs, that I may rebuild it. Now he's putting himself at risk once again and now identifying to Artaxerxes the city that he's wanting to rebuild with the gates, the walls. Because Artaxerxes now knows that it's Jerusalem and who was the king that ordered the Jews to stop rebuilding the walls of of Jerusalem earlier in his reign? King Artaxerxes. Artaxerxes. So Artaxerxes, says a chance here he would look at it and say, this is disloyalty, this is treason, this is insurrection. It's happening from my cupbearer. How can I trust a cupbearer who would come against my previous judgments in this way? So there's a lot of risk going on in all of this. And, and so he said... He he asked for that opportunity. And then the king said to me, the queen also sitting beside him, how long will your journey be? How long before you return again? Good employees are not a dime a dozen. He doesn't want them gone forever. Listen, I'll put you on loan to Jerusalem, but I want you back here. And so it pleased the king to send me and I set him a time. And furthermore, I said to the king, so here the king grants him permission to do this. And Nehemiah's been waiting four months and he hasn't been wasting time. He's been devising a plan, a means by which all of this could be accomplished. He didn't want Artaxerxes to say, yes, you can go. And then he's like stumbling around for, oh, well, I wonder what that's going to mean and what we're going to need to do and what resources we're going to need to have. He's thought all of this thing uh, uh, through. Very good uh, example of leadership. And so he said, if it pleases the king. Let letters be given to me for the governors of the region beyond the river that they must permit me to pass through until I come to Judah. Give me a letter from you that allows me safe passage to Jerusalem and also a letter to Asaph, who is the keeper of the king's forest. And that he must give me timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel, which pertains to the temple for the city wall and for the house that I will occupy. And the king granted them to me according to the good hand of my God upon me. And so he recognized this to be the a miracle of God that God has accomplished and, and that God has granted uh, in his life. I think that it's wonderful to realize, and we'll close with this, that all that Nehemiah was in the middle of here was the a part of the fulfillment of one of the most amazing prophecies concerning Jesus in all of the Bible. Because 95 years earlier, the angel Gabriel had communicated to Daniel, the prophet, concerning the coming of the promised Messiah. In fact, just hold your place here, and even though we're done with it, and turn in your Bible to the right until you come to Daniel uh, chapter 9. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel. Last of the major prophets. So Daniel is in Persia. He is under uh, at this time. The Medes were kind of the upper power, even above the Persians following the fall of Babylon. So Darius is the king of the Medes. And and, and Daniel is a servant to him. And the angel Gabriel speaks to Daniel in verse 24 and says 70 weeks, literally in the Hebrew sevens weeks is very unfortunate because we automatically think seven days. It's heptad. It means seven. Seventy sevens are determined for your people and for your holy city, speaking of Jerusalem, to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy and to anoint the most holy. In other words, what all of this is describing is the coming of Messiah. He said, Know therefore, verse 25, and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, the coming of the Messiah, there shall be seven sevens and sixty-two sevens. The street shall be built again, and then notice very significantly, worth circling in your Bible, and the wall. And these things will be done even in troublous times. And, and so, Uh, Gabriel's revelation here concerning the coming of the Messiah, the prince, he said, Daniel, one day there's going to be a decree given to restore and to rebuild Jerusalem. It was in ruins at that time. And the rebuilding of the city will include the rebuilding of the street, verse 25, as well as the wall. And the rebuilding of the city, its town square, its wall, its its outer defense is not going to be easy. There's going to be opposition, as we're going to see as we go through uh, the book of Nehemiah. And the angel Gabriel said that from the day that that decree of the rebuilding of the city of Jerusalem and the wall, From the date of that decree is given until the coming of Messiah, the prince to Israel, will be uh, seven sevens and sixty two sevens. That is sixty nine sevens total. Now, the sixty nine sevens are. Considered by virtually all scholars to refer to years simply because that's the context uh, context of the chapter there in Daniel chapter nine. The prophecy was given to Daniel while he was contemplating the prophecy of Jeremiah, who prophesied that the Jews would be in Babylonian captivity for 70 years. So you take the sixty nine sevens from the time that the decree is giving until the coming of the Messiah, the prince. Sixty nine sevens is four hundred and eighty three. And if it's years, it's four hundred and eighty three years. The prophecy was given at the time of the Babylonian uh, where the world was under the Babylonian calendar and they used a three hundred and sixty day uh, a year calendar instead of three hundred and sixty five like we use. And so if you multiply the four hundred and eighty three years by the three hundred and sixty days, you come up with one hundred and seventy three thousand eight hundred and eighty days so the Lord was revealing to Daniel that from the day that the decree to rebuild the city of Jerusalem and the wall is given, you can pull out a calendar, start marking days, and 173,880 days after that, Messiah the Prince will reveal himself to the city of Jerusalem. And so the critical question then becomes, where in the world in the Old Testament did a king make a decree to go forth and restore and rebuild Jerusalem, including its street and its wall or its outer defense? And the decree is given to us right there in Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 1. And it came to pass in the month of Nisan in the 20th year of King Artig. Xerxes. And then you notice down in verse 8 the decree given for the building of the city wall. King Artaxerxes started his reign in 465 B.C. So the 20th year was 445 B.C in chapter 2 there where it makes mention of the month of Nisan without giving a mention of the day of Nisan it always means the first day of the month and so the first day of Nisan in 445 BC was March 14th 445 BC you add 173880 days of human history to that date and you come to April 6 32 AD the very day that Jesus made his triumphant entry into the city of Jerusalem and then wept over the city because they did not know their day. God had given them the very day that the Messiah would reveal himself. You remember Jesus all the way through his public ministry. His his time had not come. 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 And when this day came, he allowed the people to worship him. On that day, but by and large, the city of Jerusalem and the religious community were completely asleep. And then the angel Gabriel goes on in the Daniel nine passage to declare to Daniel that following the coming of the Messiah, he would not establish his physical kingdom at that time. He would be cut off. That is, he'd be killed. And Jesus was crucified Uh, as, As we know, Gabriel further declared that the Messiah would be cut off, but not for himself. We know that he died for the sins of the world. And as you look at that Daniel chapter nine passage, it's a perfect description of Jesus's triumphant entry into Jerusalem and his crucifixion, all of it given in 528 B.C. And though that. That angelic messenger through that angelic messenger God gave the very day of that triumphant entry. Jesus went in, followed later that week was the crucifixion. You know the fascinating things about that prophecy in Daniel chapter 9 is that it is time sensitive. No one can come on the scene today and declare themselves to be The promised Messiah of the scriptures, the promised Jewish Messiah and be taken seriously. You know why? Because they cannot fulfill that prophecy. No one can show up on planet Earth, declare themselves to be the promised Messiah And be able to fulfill that prophecy and even if they fulfilled all of the other prophecies concerning the Messiah and could not uh, meet and fulfill that particular prophecy, then they cannot be the Messiah. You can't be the Messiah by getting an A minus. You have to fulfill all of them. And the beautiful thing about it is this. And it's a difficult thing for the Jews even to accept, though God is very, very clear, but even today. And that prophecy, because no one can fulfill it today, it communicates to the whole wide world, Jew and Gentile, that if Jesus isn't the Messiah, nobody's the Messiah. Nobody can be the Messiah if he is not the Messiah. And so you say, why go into all of this? (laughs) You look at it and you say, no wonder Nehemiah had to wait four months for just the right day for all of this to happen. God had given a prophecy to Daniel 95 years earlier. The decree to rebuild the wall has to happen on a particular day associated with Jesus and his triumphant entry. And so God makes Nehemiah wait the four months in order for the decree to occur on that specific day. And when God makes us wait, it's only because he's waiting for a more perfect timing. I think what sometimes when I ask God about something in my life or uh, related to a prayer request or for him to do something in my life. I just assume that I'm really the only thing that he's thinking about that day. That there really isn't much of a universe to run and there's hardly anybody else in the world that he could possibly be interested in uh, beyond me. But the fact of the matter is God is doing so many things all at the same time, much of which we have no understanding of what it is that's going on. And so, God, when we lift these things up to him and we ask, and it doesn't happen right away, so often when our heart is burdened in this way, we know he's going to do it. He's just waiting for the perfect timing because he's not only going to get you into the right place at the right time, but he's probably going to knock about, uh, out about half a dozen other things all at the same time. And it's just amazing to look how supernaturally natural God was working in human history through Nehemiah. It wasn't just about a wall. It wasn't just about Jerusalem. It wasn't just about the Jews and their pitiful condition. But it was about recognizing the Messiah based upon the prophetic scriptures that God was accomplishing at the same time. We'll stop there tonight. Let's stand together and we'll pray. A little technical tonight on some of this. And um, so uh, there, Uh, but that's the way that it is sometimes. Sometimes. Sometimes you, you head into these things, and Artaxerxes in 445 BC in 173,880 days, and you walk out. It's the first time you've ever heard something like that. You walk away, and your jaw drops, amazement of the prophecy in terms of the big picture uh, of of things. And uh, but you say, boy, I, I couldn't repeat that to my mom when I go home. And well, you don't need to. You'll pick it up over time. But but the, but the impact of of the scriptures and and the beauty and the, the depth of them. If Jesus isn't the Messiah, no one's the Messiah. If you stand here tonight and you're not yet a Christian, you have not yet put your faith in him as your Savior and as your Lord for the forgiveness of your sins. What, I mean, what, what neon sign does God have to give you other than what he's already given you through the scriptures? So tonight's the night to surrender and to come to him. And there are going to be men and women up in front immediately after the service as well as the pastor's. Who would love to pray with you to begin that relationship with the Lord this evening. Let's pray together now. Father, we thank you for your word tonight. We thank you for this little uh, couple of steps into some of the great lessons that are found related to Nehemiah's life. So many lessons, big ones and small ones, but all of them so important and relating to our lives as well. We thank you, Lord, that you have a plan for each one of our lives. You have a calling on our lives. And again, we thank you for this instruction on what the initial steps in something like that can look like, Lord, and how to respond to it. And we just pray that you give it a living place in each one of our lives as we just live with a very, very sincere desire to accomplish your will, Lord, in this world. Through our lives. We thank you for the meaning. And the purpose. And the value that you bring to our lives. For us to be engaged. In the expansion of your kingdom. And of your work. We're humbled by it Lord. We're in awe of it. And we thank you for revelation. About how to not misunderstand it. Lord. That we have here in the book of Nehemiah. Again we close tonight. With the same way that we began. By giving you praise for how great you are, how good you are, how good you have been to us, Lord. We pinch ourselves for the privilege of knowing you and being able to walk with you and to serve you. Thank thank you for the life that we get to live as Christians. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.